What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, better testing and possible treatments for COVID-19 from our own bodies. The CEO of Adaptive Biotechnologies. We are generating this massive amount of data on the immune response, not only to develop our own test, but we're opening up this data to the public. Is the coronavirus mutating into something worse? Dr. Scott Gottlieb joins us. This virus has undergone genetic drift. Just because it mutates doesn't mean it's changing in ways that's going to make it more virulent or more infectious. And after pandemic, where will we work? Designing the offices of the future, Architectural Digest's Sam Cochran. This is the end of water cooler culture, which is which is a shame, but I do think that the sort of shared coffee pot will will be uh, a thing of the past. It's Wednesday, May 6th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, researchers at the Los Alamos National Laboratory published a 33-page report recently, apparently revealing that the coronavirus may be mutating and could be more contagious. In this early report, yet to be peer-reviewed, the researchers warn that if COVID-19 doesn't subside over the summer, like the seasonal flu, it might mutate further, potentially limiting vaccine efficacy. It all sounds really scary, so we asked our go-to doctor friend, we all have one, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former commissioner of the FDA, CNBC contributor, and board member at Pfizer and Illumina. Here's Becky Quick. Dr. Gottlieb, you and I went back and forth a little bit yesterday about this. I, I was concerned reading on this, uh, and you actually made me feel a little bit better. What, what, what are your thoughts on what we're hearing about this mutation at this point? Well, it's a computational analysis that shows that the dominant strain in Europe and subsequently in the United States was this strain that had a single base pair chain in, change in the sequence. Um, a single amino acid got changed out. And they suggest that because this became the dominant strain based on their computational analysis, it must be more contagious We saw a change like this with Ebola, and we initially thought that it also made Ebola more contagious. And we actually had cell culture data to support it at that time. And we found that when we put it into animal studies, in fact, the change in the virus didn't change its um, contours at all, didn't make it more infectious. Here we just have the computational analysis. We don't have any other data to support it, including cell culture data. And it could be what we call founder's effect. It could just be that this strain with this single base pair chain change is what got into Europe and then Europe subsequently seeded the United States. And so the analysis could be confounded by the fact that this just became the dominant strain in Europe because it got into Europe early and then got into the United States from Europe. So it really doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove that this new strain is, in fact, more infectious, which is what they concluded. You know, it does raise the question, though, about mutations and and whether or not a vaccine would be able to stop it entirely. You you think about the flu vaccine. It doesn't always work. There are a lot of different strains, and we're never entirely sure which strain is going to be uh, the most common strain that goes around any given flu season. Is, Is that a concern with this, or do you think that that's less likely to happen? Not as much of a concern as it is with flu, because the spike protein, what we've seen is it's relatively stable. It undergoes changes. So there have been mutations 
in this virus as it spread around the world. But the spike protein itself and the characteristics of it that the vaccines would target are relatively stable. Now, that said, you probably would want to change the vaccine every year or two, every couple of years, maybe every two or three years, because there is going to be drift. But you probably wouldn't see the kind of changes within a season that would obviate a vaccine with this particular virus. Yeah, that's that's the protein that that gets into the or that, that latches to something on the cell that uh, of the right. host that, that allows it to get in. So, yeah, that that when we spoke to the, uh, the, the lead researcher at Pfizer, that's the one that they're using or, or uh, I guess there's a, maybe a couple of proteins. Scott, when I read that headline, like so many headlines that I read on, on some of these sites like Drudge or whatever, they made it sound like that the, the, the mutated strain was new and it was going to be more infectious from here on out. But the strain we have is different than the original strain in China, which made it more contagious. This is what we're already dealing with, right? They, they failed to point that out in the, with, with the clickbait headline on drugs. Right. Well, look, there's a lot of different strains circulating. This, this virus has undergone genetic drift. Just because it mutates doesn't mean it's changing in ways that's going to make it more virulent or more infectious, more dangerous or more infectious. It is going to drift over time. Um, generally, the drift should be in the direction of making it less, less, less right, virulent, right. less dangerous, not right. more, if it's selected for, because it wants to keep its host alive. But just because it's changing doesn't mean it's changing in ways that's making it worse right. or it, better. It, it, um, but it is changing. It usually there's goes the other two different way. strains it, that predominate. It, it usually goes the other right. way. And, and right. there's, there's hope for that. So right. there's also a piece that said, if you catch coronavirus, it will cut 13 years off your life. And that makes the way that that's written makes it sound like even if you live, you will live. But all that was doing was averaging the age of people that got it that unfortunately pass away and what they would have been expected to live to. But they totally I mean, there's so much out in, in the in the media right now, uh, Scott, that, that just is inflammatory and incendiary and sensationalistic that you really need to read between the lines on, on all this stuff, even stuff that you're quoted on all the time. You got you probably I, were, you're probably scared to say anything uh, at this point, right? <laughs> I see. I see myself misquoted as well. You're like, Look, Look, the headline coming out of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the headline coming out of that Los Alamos study yesterday was was very misleading. The study, exactly. the reports that were done in some of the newspaper press were misleading. They con- they concluded far too much from that study than what the study actually showed. Right. Andrew, I just wanted to understand when we were talking earlier about the different strains, how this works when it comes to the vaccines, how it works when it comes to therapeutics. You know, you're going down one path to try to to try to solve one piece of, piece of it. You know how complicated it is if how complicated is it if it mutates? Yeah, generally with drugs or with a vaccine, you're trying to target parts of the um, virus that are preserved that don't undergo mutations in ways that would obviate um, the machinery in a fashion that would uh, thwart whatever your drug is trying to do or what the vaccine is trying to do. So with the drugs, you're targeting aspects of viral replication that really don't change all that much. And we have a lot of drugs targeting viruses that are relatively stable over time. The viruses don't learn how to how to thwart them over short periods of time. And with the vaccine, you're targeting the spike protein. Or with the antibody drugs, you're targeting that spike protein. And what we've seen in the sequence data is, yes, the spike protein does undergo changes, genetic changes, but not enough to, uh, 
to thwart a vaccine or an antibody drug within the confines of a single season, as we sometimes see with the flu vaccine. So it doesn't mutate that rapidly. So if we had a vaccine for coronavirus that was targeting the spike protein, probably we'd want to re-engineer the vaccine every two or three years to be safe. But you wouldn't need to re-engineer it probably within the confines of a single season. It should be relatively stable. So we should be able to target this virus. And this, this study that came out doesn't suggest otherwise. Okay, good. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. It's great to see you this morning. Thanks a lot. How about Disney, if the world someday resembles the world that we used to know? Is that not the greatest collection of assets in the world? Yeah. And it was 140 bucks, and now it's $100 or whatever it is. If you think that things are eventually going to be back somewhat normal, isn't this where you'd want to buy Disney, Sorkin, or no? I think you might. I think you might. Um, let's get to our corporate story right now, which is Disney, just to walk through some of the numbers, and then we can, we can have the discussion. Uh, and, and, and by the way, given you're right, in a normal world, this would be a great discount. The question, of course, is uh, how long the challenges persist for. Uh, shares are trading lower, as we talked about, after the company posted a bigger than expected drop in quarterly earnings. The coronavirus pandemic cutting profits by about $1.4 billion in the last quarter. Now, the company was hit by a decline in advertising, as you might imagine, movie delays, and the big one, the closure of its parks. Disney also announcing it will skip its dividend payment for the first half of the year as it tries to save some cash. Now, as for what's next, the company says it plans to reopen Disney Shanghai next week on May 11th. And we'll walk through what that even looks like because it's complicated. Here's what uh, Bob Chapak, the new Bob, the new uh, CEO of the company, said about that in his first conference call in the role. The approach we take may include implementation of guest capacity and density control measures, as well as health and prevention procedures that comply with state and federal guidelines. We are seeing encouraging signs of a gradual return to some semblance of normalcy in China. So at least for the time being, when they do open, Shanghai or Disney Shanghai, which normally has a capacity of something on the order of about 80,000 people, is going to start with about 24,000 people um, or at least try to move uh, ramp up to 24,000 people. That's a cap that's been put on uh, by the government there as part of the, some of the social distancing measures that are uh, going to be taking place. So we're going to watch that very, very carefully in part to see what kind of demand there is. He even talked about potential, uh, you know, getting back uh, in the in the cruise business. Um, and the idea that that business is going to get uh, is going to come back. So we'll see. Uh, you know, we're Andrew, talk we to talked about very, this. Yeah, I was just going to say we talked about this at the dinner table last night. The, the conversation of if they actually reopened Disney World or Disneyland here in America and had a limited number of people that you could have coming into the parks. Can you imagine how great that would be to not have the lines there? You'd have to feel awfully comfortable about going back in and being one of the first ones. But we were kind of game playing it with kids last night, you know, like. What would happen if you could go and, and how many rides could you possibly get on if the, they actually limited the number of people they were letting in? Right. Well, maybe it'll become more attractive. I mean, so it'll be very interesting. I think there's <laughs> going to be a, a huge group of you know, there might be a, a big pent up demand of, of families that want to try to do it. And I don't know whether the well, masks again, the temperature taking. Um, I noticed, by the way, just last night that, uh, that uh, I think Blade, the helicopter company, is not just going to take your temperature to get on a helicopter, but they're going to check your um, oxygen levels because that's been considered one <laughs> really? of the Really? Oh, because that's points. supposed to be so, a big sign, right, that that doesn't show up early, right? If, yeah, so we will see. Virgin Galactic reporting a first quarter loss. 
That company uh, touting the potential for millions of dollars in future revenue as more people have put down deposits to reserve a ticket once the space venture resumes sales. The results coming just days after Virgin Galactic celebrated the first glide flight of its spaceship over its new home at Spaceport America in New Mexico. Becky, are you going to be buying a ticket? Uh, Not a chance. (laughs) Pretty happy and healthy right here. What about you, Andrew? Would you do it? He, yeah, Tom Cruise wants to do that movie. In a couple of years from now, I would. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is either the bravest or the stupidest. The stunts that he has done already. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that this morning. He gets hurt. Can you imagine taking a camera crew up up into space so you can? I mean, what's? Can't you feign weightlessness? Some? How can you make a movie out in space? That's not worth it just because you're weightless. Is it? You can I do took special a effects. In huh? my bedroom, I'll do Andrew, that. Andrew, you're not going up in space. Yeah. That's you know you. There's no way. Yeah, you talk about it, but what you say if you're the you'll be the five hundred thousandth passenger. No, that's what I said no, no. I said a couple years from now. A couple years from now, they'll get the thing up and running. And then I'll go a couple years from now. Okay. What if there's a baby crying in first class? <laughs> that's a problem, as still, you know. Still. But these are these are these are high class good. problems to have at this yeah. point. All right. Next on Squawk Pod, our bodies, our treatment. Immune medicine leader Adaptive Biotechnologies is partnering with Microsoft. CEO Chad Robbins joins us. Our bodies hold important information and clues that Adaptive can harness in our partnership with Microsoft to be able to take this information and create potentially better diagnostics and therapeutics uh, for this horrible virus. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. The race is on for improved testing, treatment, and a vaccine for COVID-19. And one company is partnering with Microsoft to try and decide how the human immune system responds to the virus to try and make testing more reliable. Joining us right now is Chad Robbins. He is Adaptive Biotechnology CEO and co-founder. And Chad, we were going back and forth last week, uh, but this is a new announcement today. Let's talk about exactly what you're doing and how you're using data to try and make sure that you can make testing more reliable. How's it work? Sure. First of all, thank you, Becky, for having me back on the show. It's great to see you again. Um, Yes, we just announced a study called Immune Race to study the impacts of COVID-19 on the human adaptive immune system. Uh, Our bodies hold important information and clues that Adaptive can harness in our partnership with Microsoft to be able to take this information and create potentially better diagnostics and therapeutics uh, for for this horrible virus. Explain how that how that works. Right now, there are these tests where you take a, either a nose or a throat swab and, and you get uh, some some material from the virus and, and, and see how the body is kind of reacting to that. How does it break down? What what information are you looking at and how does that help you? Yeah, sure. If we we can break the diagnostic paradigm really into three different phases. Up front, there's a type of test called PCR testing that's looking at the presence of the virus itself. So if you talk about that throat swab or that nasal swab that's done, that's looking at the presence of the virus. 
What we're, we're trying to answer questions that are gaps in these paradigms and, and what in the diagnostics right now. So the issue up front is that these tests, these PCR-based tests, aren't picking up all of the people that have the virus, and these are called false negatives. Then in the middle, there's a segment of patients. We don't know yet which patients are gonna have lighter symptoms, cold and flu-like symptoms, and be able to recover earlier from the virus versus which patients are gonna require hospital stages or are at risk for mortality. And so one of the questions that, again, we're trying to answer is how we can stratify patients based on an immune response so we can determine you know, which patients need to be triaged for hospitals, hospital stays versus which will have lighter symptoms. And then on the, on the back end, there's testing called serology testing, um, which is looking for the presence of antibodies. Um, and there's issues on this testing, both with false negatives, but the bigger issue uh, is with false positive. Telling, telling a, a, a person or a patient that they've had the virus and giving them this kind of immune clearance to go back when go back to work when they actually haven't had the virus. And so we, along with you know, our partner Microsoft, which is just an extension of our existing you know, partnership, are trying to answer these questions so we can fill in the gaps um, you know, with the existing diagnostic paradigm. And importantly, I do, th do wanna mention, um, we are generating this massive amount of data on the immune response, not only to develop our own test, but we're opening up this data to, to, to the public so that you public health officials, uh, other biotech companies, uh, can, and even academic researchers can all use the data to come up with solutions, their own solutions for COVID-19. Yeah, that's hugely important and very laudable. And, and Chad, thank you for making sure that you're doing that right now. That's incredibly responsible. It's a thing to do to make sure that we are fighting this and everybody is getting ahead of this as fast as we can. Let me ask you a couple of questions, though. First of all, in terms of the, the testing that you're seeing so far, we, we've talked to a lot of different people about how reliable these tests are. Where, where would you say the reliability is right now and how much do you think you can improve it with these tests that you're undertaking right now? Yeah, so I think there's two issues on kind of the reliability of testing. Uh, one is on standardization, uh, and then the second is on really kind of the biology and what these tests are actually picking up. Um, first, I think the FDA has done uh, you know, a, a good job in, 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 in recent weeks of trying to kind of standardize some of these type of tests. Um, but I do think it's still, uh, you know, a big issue because there's many different test manufacturers uh, and all the tests are different. Uh, and it's, it's a real problem, not just to kind of have standardized testing, but then also to be able to then track and then trace the, uh, trace the spread of the virus. Um, and then there are certain biological issues, um, and I mentioned them before, about these tests. Uh, you, know, I, you know, obviously they have, you know, a, a strong utility in certain areas, but I think there are significant gaps um, that, that many, many people, specifically who are, you know, carriers of the disease and asymptomatic, or just in general, that, the, the, that up front the PCR tests are not picking up all the patients that uh, have it. And that, that, that's a real issue. And then... You know, again, on the back end, you know, the, the, the serology tests, you know, I think there's I do think there's significant issues with giving kind of a, a, an immune clearance um, based on a scan. And so what we're hoping to do and answer these questions um, and, and it might be one or it might be all of these questions that we can answer with one test, because we might be the only ones who are looking at this type of cell called a, a T cell that we think is, uh, you know, at the very least. 
um, it's complementary and can add to part of the solution. And at the very, you know, most, if you will, you know, that, that could potentially be a better on diagnosis up front and a, a real, a, a better at stratifying and then better at giving, you know, this a true clearance in terms of an immune scan. Chad, do you have any hypotheses about why some people, we know that this disease affects people who are older more, it affects people who have underlying conditions, whether that be obesity, diabetes, uh, breathing issues that they've had in the past, it affects them more. But there are other cases where it seems to hit one person very hard and not someone else. And I've read a lot about potential theories behind that. I just wonder if you have one going into, into your research on this. Well, that's, Becky, that's a great question. And actually, that's one of the questions we're trying to answer. And we're trying to answer it kind of from, from the reverse. We're actually letting the immune system tell us, uh, you know, based on what the immune system is seeing, um, we can potentially uh, answer those questions by looking at different signatures of how our bodies are responding to the disease to understand that specific question of, you know, also specific questions of different geographies, different time points during the disease, in the disease course, and how that impacts different segments, different, uh, if you look at age, uh, these are all questions that by truly understanding the immune response to the disease, we, sh we hopefully uh, should be able to answer these questions. Well, Chad, good luck and Godspeed. We, we wish you the best of luck. And again, we appreciate that you are taking all this information and making it public so that everyone can use the research to try and get ahead. It's great seeing you today. Hey, Becky, thanks for having me on. Next on Squawk Pod, if we ever get back to the office, what will it look like? How the world's top designers and architects are rebuilding for the future. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Coronavirus has forced all of us inside and away from our offices and other public places. When we come back out, how will the physical spaces of the future meet our needs? How will the new normal be built? I turned to Sam Cochran, Features Director at Architectural Digest, where you can usually find cutting-edge design and a peek at celebrity homes, for insight. Sam, I'm at home. Where, where are you right now? I am also at home. I've been sheltering in place in Brooklyn for the past however many weeks. It's hard to keep track, but um, months, <laughs> months, months, an eternity. The coronavirus pandemic is forcing us, I think, to reevaluate our spaces as we spend so much time at home and so much time worrying about what pathogens we're sharing when we're out of the home. 
Uh, and I have to think that this goes beyond me sitting here in my closet where I do this every day, thinking about how I should <laughs> rearrange it. So we're all sort of um, trying to adjust to this new way of living and working. And even though it's temporary, I think we have so much to learn from, from the experience in terms of our surroundings going forward. And certainly top of mind is how a virus, as you say, can spread. And so that really uh, extends to all facets of design from the surfaces that people use. I, uh, designers will surely embrace more antibacterial surfaces like copper, but it also extends to things like air conditioning and HVAC and how can we ventilate spaces to encourage airflow and mitigate disease. I could go on and on. I'd like to start maybe with our offices, you know, at Squawk Box. For example, we have standing desks um, Mm -hmm. that are placed right next to each other. I'm elbow to elbow with my colleagues normally. How's that going to change? Office design is super interesting right now. I mean, So many of the design conversations happening in the world at this point are proposals, but I think as offices reopen, we will see workspaces having to execute these design changes um, first. They'll sort of be the first wave of that. And so, you know, obviously, as we all reenter our office buildings, there will be greater attention paid to social distancing. How can you separate bodies, even an open plan? And, and we hear that from architects, from companies all across the country as they, as they prepare for this. Uh, but, you know, it's also, it's a technological question. Mm-hmm. How do we make it so employees don't have to touch doors, don't have to touch light switches and elevator buttons? And it's a question of wayfinding. How can we eliminate unnecessary uh, interactions between people? How can we make it so people are walking in one direction, for instance, and don't have to cross paths with, with a colleague at every, at every third step? Wow. You think there could actually be traffic uh, instructions in, in your workplace? I do. I think it's such a simple change. Uh, you know, all it requires is a sign and, you know, a sort of um, commitment from, from a workforce to following, following the rules. And it, it, it's, it will really eliminate a fair number of unnecessary interactions. I also, I sort of joke that this is the end of water cooler culture, which is, which is a shame, but I do think that, um, you know, this sort of shared coffee pot will, will be a, a thing of the past, at least in the short term, once we're back at work. So much of our capitalist productive society has been about trying to cram as many people into as ex- small mm-hmm. of an existing space as possible. And that comes in our airports, that comes in our New York City apartment buildings, airplanes, hotels, trains, really everything that is involved in our sort of commercial culture today. Mm-hmm. Um, how drastically will these kinds of things be rethought? We're all experiencing a kind of trauma, I would say, right now. Um, I think I think we can all agree on I that. Am. <laughs> um, I think yes, yes. Um, and so the sort of psychology, the, the long-term psychology of what I call proximity to others, I think it's changed so dramatically and so quickly, and it stands to change as dramatically and as quickly after the fact. So I don't, you know, I don't I don't see a reversal of gathering as a source of pleasure you know i have to hold out hope that that we're all gonna band together for the long term thank you so much sam this was really nice to talk to you thank you so much and that's the show for today thank you for listening this podcast is a hybrid that we hope gives you the smartest moments and analysis from our three-hour morning show on cnbc 
plus a little extra. On TV, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Squawk Pod is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline O'Brien. John Lesration edited this episode. And we are here for you every day. So subscribe and share Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 